What I'm getting ready to share with you is courtesy of Don Bernard. So if you don't like it, throw him under the bus. Okay? An Indian walks into a cafe with a shotgun. Now this is a this is a an American Indian. Walks into a a cafe with a shotgun in one hand, and he's pulling a male buffalo with him on the other. And he says to the waiter, I want coffee. So the waiter says, sure, chief, coming right up. And he gets the Indian a tall mug of coffee, and the Indian drinks the coffee down in one gulp. Now, that's kind of my picture of how you drink coffee. Here's a tough guy over here. He drinks it in one gulp. Is that true, Patty? Does he drink coffee fast? My dad could <laughs> guzzle coffee, hot as all get out. Um, so he, he gets a tall mug of coffee and drinks it down in one gulp, and he turns and blasts the buffalo with a shotgun, causing parts of the animal to splatter all over this restaurant, and then he just walks out. So the next morning, the Indian comes back. And he's got a shotgun in one hand. He's pulling another male buffalo in the other hand with the other, and he walks up to the counter and says to the waiter, Want coffee? And the waiter says, Whoa, we're still cleaning up your mess from yesterday. What was that all about? Yes, what was that all about anyway? And the Indian smiles and proudly says, I'm training for a position in the United States Congress. Come in, drink coffee, shoot the bull, leave a mess for others to clean up, disappear for the rest of the day. It's election week. Thank you, Don. It's election week. The two things you got to remember this week is to, to set your clock right. You're already too late for that one. But don't forget to vote. And don't go Monday, Roger. Go Tuesday, okay? All right. It could... What? Well, shoot the bull, though. There's kind of... Yeah, but you're right. Now... I want to give you a little bit of background on where we're going to be today. What do we know about Ezekiel? Remember he saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air? You know that, that old gospel song? Um, uh, but Ezekiel lived in a time of disaster. Now, um, I, I use a little bit of, of, of the illustration here. Um, a couple of years back, um, on May 22nd, in, back in 2011, uh, that EF5 tornado goes through Joplin. Uh, that's kind of a personal story for us. Uh, Rhonda and I were in the process of moving that weekend, and uh, we start hearing all these reports. And of course, her entire family lives in that area, and we couldn't get a hold of them. And um, uh, come to find out, we had made a, a kind of a, a rush trip up there because mom, Rhonda's mom, had been placed in the hospital on I'm thinking on a Thursday, or maybe a, anyway, Thursday or Friday. And we went up there real quick to make sure she was okay. And, and stayed a little bit and then came back. And uh, what I remember is Rhonda and her sister, both of whom are nurses, were really angry with the doctor for dismissing her from the hospital on the weekend. Let her go, I'm going to guess, on Saturday. Well, her hospital was flattened. The hospital where she was staying was flattened the next day by this tornado that went through Joplin. You remember that story? Um, so that kind of when I, when I read about that, uh, I, I remember it kind of personally. But I also remember and notice, um, uh, in fact, some of our students did this. Maybe some, some that you knew uh, did this. Uh, the outpouring of mercy 
and the outpouring of the care of God through the hands of people in the wake of that. We've seen it a lot here. Um, those that were committed to what the Bible calls in Hebrews 12, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're, we're responding to people whose lives had really been shaken up. Well, uh, the prophet Ezekiel lived through a disaster, but it wasn't a natural disaster. Uh, this was a political disaster. Um, his in homeland, Judah and uh, Jerusalem, that area, had been um, besieged by the Babylonians <coughs> under King Nebuchadnezzar, who ravaged the land, and they took tens of thousands of, of um, citizens, uh, is, um, Judean citizens, including Ezekiel himself, captive to Babylon. They carted them a thousand miles away. There on foreign soil, Ezekiel witnessed something else. Uh, he's a thousand miles from home. There are lots of exiles there with him. And he starts getting visions about what God's getting ready to do. And so he, and God tells him, write them down. That's what this book is about. And uh, it's cryptic in some places, but it's also in, in, uh, extremely, wonderfully beautiful. And we're going to look at some of that today. Um, God's word in Ezekiel's day had lost none of its power. And he's going to witness that and witness the promises of God and kind of convey them to the people um, of his day and encourage them. So we're going to try to get some encouragement of that too. Now, uh, what? let me give you just a little bit more little background detail. There were three deportations of Judean citizens to Babylon. The first one took place in 605. There was another one in 597. And the final one in 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed. Ezekiel went to Babylon, was taken to Babylon in the second of those in 597. And uh, his book tells us, uh, by the way, Daniel was taken captive in the first. Ezekiel was taken captive in the second. So they're contemporaries uh, and had kind of a similar fate. Um, although Ezekiel wasn't quite as connected as Daniel was. Um, of interest is um, the mention of the 30th year. If you look at the very first verse of the book of Ezekiel, he's going to say, in the 30th year this happened. That means he was about 30 years old when this took place. And um, he was at the age of which Levites, the tribe from which all priests came, uh, began their sacred service to the Lord. Uh, literally, this is interesting, and I, I try to kind of share this with students at, at the school um, literally, if you wanted to be a worship leader, uh, like a Levite in, in those days, you had to go through five years of apprenticeship. That means, means you went to class and you learned how to play your instrument or sing your song, but you didn't get to be before the people till after five years. We don't do it that way anymore. And they had to be 30 years old. So, uh, these were fully vetted people. Well, um, uh, Ezekiel kind of was at that particular age. His name means God strengthens. Or, interestingly, in Hebrew, God makes hard. And isn't it interesting that this dual, um, dual uh, connotation of his name, it kind of makes it appropriate given the circumstances that he faced in history. Now, at the point of the book of Ezekiel where, where we're going to talk today... Um, he has been serving as the Lord's prophet in Babylon 
uh, to a people that has been in, in exile for about 25 years. He's been there about 30. And we're, we calculate it about 573 B.C. Uh, and what happens here and what we're talking about, because he's going to refer to a man, and the man is really not a man at all, but we feel like some kind of an angelic visitor who begins to be kind of uh, tour him around these heavy, heavenly visions. So let's get into it. Uh, can we read the first? Bob, can you read the first five verses? Okay, now, um, he's going to again here, oriented appropriately. Put the word in the first blank. Ezekiel's orientation is important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now, but I'll spend a little more time on it uh, later. But literally, the word oriental or orientation means to face the east. Now, we're going to uncover here why he needed to face east. According to verse 2, why did he need to face east? You see what happens in verse 2? The Lord's glory returns from the east. So if he's turned the wrong way, he might miss it. Okay, so his orientation is all important here. Um, what the prophet then in verse 2 sees and hears meant the return of the glory of the Lord. Now, um, beginning in chapter 8, he is led through, it's interesting, by this kind of tour guide that he has. He's led through uh, the current temple in Jerusalem in this vision. And he is shocked at the appalling practices that are going there, going on there. Go with me chapter 10. Okay, so go back a little ways. And somebody read verse 18 and 19. It's going to talk a little bit about what Ezekiel found when this this uh, angelic being kind of led him um, through this vision of what's going on at the temple, even though he's a thousand miles away. Now, what's going on is there's all kinds of despicable practices going on back in Jerusalem, even within the temple courts themselves. And Ezekiel is allowed the privilege, and I use that word really, stretch that word, to see what's going on. And the other thing that he sees is literally the presence of God, the glory of God that kind of hovered over the cherubim inside the Holy of Holies departs from the temple. He gets to watch it. Is that a pleasant or a sad sight? It's awful. It's awful. I want you to go with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel 4. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story from 1 Samuel 4, but it's another time when uh, this idea of the glory of the Lord departing. Um, <laughs> I don't I have not watched this show, but I'm intrigued by it. Anybody watch... Um, 
Sleepy Hollow? Is any good? Uh, who's the main character in Sleepy Hollow in the old, in the old book? Ichabod Crane, right? Okay, we're going to deal with Ichabod Crane here. It's appropriate for Halloween weekend, you know. Um, okay, in, in uh, 1 Samuel 4, we, we have met Samuel, if you're reading through your Bible. I'm reading through this section in my Bible reading these days. Um, you, you've met Samuel, and uh, you meet Eli. You remember who, who Eli was? He was the priest at the time, the high priest at the time, and he was kind of the mentor for um, the boy Samuel. You remember that story where Hannah comes to the temple? Uh, she can't have children. She begs God. And Eli promises her, you're going to have a boy by this time next year. And she does. She raises him till he's four or five years old, brings him back, hands him to Eli and says, now he's yours. And she brings him clothes every year and, and uh, kind of keeps up with him. But Samuel becomes the pivotal character in history, in this part of, of Israel's history. Uh, it doesn't go well between Judges and Samuel, and Samuel turns all that around. Well, this is, um, Samuel is still serving as, as kind of a, an apprentice to Eli, and Eli's on the scene. The, um, but the, the, uh, the Philistines have just kind of um, captured over and over again um, Israelite territory. They're uh, um, they're just terrorizing them here. And so they're in battle, and they make the stupid decision. And this is partially, Eli signed off on it, although I don't think it was his idea. They make the stupid decision, the reason we're not winning battles is because the Ark of the Covenant isn't with us. So they send down to Shiloh, where it's housed, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this box? You could call it the glory box because they believed that the presence of God, the glory of God, was around that box. So they were using it kind of like a rabbit's foot. One of my dad's expressions was, I guess he lost his rabbit's foot, which is a funny thing in itself. But they, they're using it like a rabbit's foot. They, they want God to bless them in battle. Well, what happens? The Philistines capture the ark. It's a horrible thing. And so there's a runner in chapter 4 here that comes from the battle line and says, uh, it's not going well. And Eli's very concerned about that. And the second thing Eli says is, uh, where's the ark? It's been captured by the Philistines. Okay, now, if you read toward the end of chapter 4, you're going you're gonna to read that Eli was fat and he's sitting on a stool. And uh, the news of that, his two sons are are killed in battle, but the thing that gets his attention is the loss of the ark, and he falls back off this stool, breaks his neck, and dies right there. What a story. Now, here's where Ichabod comes in. The last couple of verses. One of the daughters-in-law is pregnant, expecting a child. She gives birth to the child uh, as the ark leaves Israel. She gives birth to the child, and she dies in childbirth. But as she dies, look at the last couple of verses of chapter 4. And she called the boy Ichabod. There's the first, first telling of that name. She called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. Now, the word Ichabod literally means the glory has departed. The word for glory in the Old Testament, this little Hebrew word, you've got to, when you say it, you've got to make sure you're not standing really close to somebody because you've got to clear your throat to say it. It's the word chabad. 
okay, which means the glory or the weight of God. Now, in, in Samuel, that glory has left. It happens again later here in the story that we're just studying here in Ezekiel 43. How, what a horrible thing for Ezekiel to recognize that the presence, the weight, uh, the heavenliness of God has left. Now, verse 3, Ezekiel is going to see two, uh, three visions. He's going to talk about three visions. going to talk about his current vision, which is uh, this vision of the glory returning. The first one is his own call. That happened in chapter 2 when God came to him by um, the Kebar River in Babylon, which was, this was after he was taken to Babylon. So it's his own call. God saying, "You're going to be. You're going to. I'm going to tell you some things. You're going to report them. You're going to be a prophet to the people." And then certainly the second one that we read about a little bit ago, which is God's glory departing. Now, in verse four, again, we're dealing with this idea that Ezekiel is looking to the east, and the glory of the Lord returns to the Lord's temple. Now. Uh, Somebody read 8, 16. Go back and read 8, chapter 16. Uh, chapter 8, verse I can't imagine it being worse. Well, I actually can because I've read about it sometimes when it was worse. But what John is reading here is there's some, there's some Babylonians and others that are standing in the temple courts looking east and they're worshiping the sun. No wonder the glory has departed. What Ezekiel is allowed to see here in chapter 43 is coming from that direction. From the direction that the glory of the Lord left, it's now returning. Now, the, the, the idea of the east comes for the first time in this book, in the passage that John read in chapter 8. And it, it, um, this, this term, the east, occurs over 50 times, or about 50 times in the book of Ezekiel. So evidently, what's happening in the east is kind of a big deal to him. Now, I've done a few hundred funerals in my life. Um, and uh, early on, and really still, especially in Oklahoma, I will have to get with the funeral director when I get to the cemetery, if we're burying a body in the cemetery, and I'll have to say, okay, where do you want me to stand? Because there's a place I'm supposed to stand, and there are places I'm not supposed to stand. And they want me to stand on the west, which is interesting, okay, because a body in Oklahoma, in most places, is always buried east and, east and west, not north and south. You don't do that. And the tradition is that the minister stands on the west because in kind of lot, there's lots of significance to the west, which I think is a little bit, um, um, just a little bit of, of uh, superstition. But the idea is, anybody know why, you, why you, the head is at the west? Anybody know? The idea is when Jesus returns, they will rise looking to the east. Okay? They will be appropriately oriented. There's that word again. 
means looking to the east. Now, uh, Ezekiel here is very concerned about that. Now, what I want to ask you is this. I want to apply this a little bit. We may not get too much further than this, but let's see. What happens to you, what happens in your life when you look to the east? Estella, in Oklahoma, we've got amazing sunrises and sunsets. We, and we get to see both of those because there's not a mountain or hill in the way. Evidently, there's, that's part of the deal. That the Son of God, I'll need to be looking for, for the east for also. Now, I, I don't want to capture a whole lot of that thought, but, but I do want you to think a little bit about it. When you see a sunrise, what do you do with it? Thank the Lord you had one more day. What else? So what do I do when I look at the east? What do I do when I see the sunrise? That ought to prompt praise for me. It really should. Uh, and we get really wonderful opportunities at that in Oklahoma, don't we? I'm not just because I'm an Oklahoman. I'm saying we just have... Um, I'm looking somewhere, um, somebody showed me a picture of one of our buildings this week that was at sunrise, and, and the, you know, there's a lot of pink and orange and blue, and, and I'm just thinking, doesn't the Lord paint a wonderful picture? It, it's enough for me to think that, it's, it's one thing for me to think that, but I ought to really acknowledge it. The, the East ought to be a big deal to me in some ways. As I see the sunrise, I ought to be prompted to praise. Now, if you need help with that, read to the Lord Psalm 5, where he talks about in the morning, while I lift my voice and praise to you, Ruth. Yeah. Find a psalm that helps you express that if you're not if you feel like you're not good at expressing those things in words. But it's really okay for you to just say to God, Lord, thank you for painting me such a wonderful picture. And I choose to acknowledge that that's you that put it there. Now, you could argue, you could you know, study meteorology and argue about all the things that go into those colors in the sky. Uh, cool weather has something to do with some of it. You know, I, I get that. But I think the Lord is involved in this thing. I also think as I look to the east, I need to acknowledge that just like, and you can read Acts 1 and get this picture, just like Jesus ascended, one day he will return. And the Bible tells me, I don't know what you think about this, lots of books and even new movies about this, but the Bible tells me that every eye will see him. Every eye. Every eye. That you and I, wherever we are, will look and we'll see it. Now that's something to celebrate. That's something to bring me encouragement. In the loss of a loved one, in um, the dis whatever discouragement I'm going through, you know, there are some days when I get up and I think, okay, Lord, um, if you're getting up a busload to go today, why don't you just put me in the bus with you? I'm, I'm ready to go. Because 
sometimes, don't we, but the, just some of the things around us just get so disheartening, including the things happening in our world. Won't it be wonderful to look to the east, every eye in here, and to see his return? Won't it be wonderful to know that I'm prepared for that return? You can become prepared, by the way. All you've got to do is ask him. <laughs> Lord, I don't know what happens when you come back. And some of my friends are a bit confused about that. All I know is that I need to be ready for that moment. So teach me how to get ready. And if the Lord says to you, you need to bow and repent and pray, then just do that. That's all it takes. Now, I want us to move on, but I wanted to be sure that we caught that little bit of a thought. The glory is now returning to the Lord's temple, and the prophet can see from the inner court uh, all of these things that are going on, and he realizes that one of these days the glory is going to return. Now let's, let's go on. Somebody read 6 down through 9. We'll probably have to stop there. Okay, I want us to go just real quickly through this so that we kind of catch it. The, he hears a voice in his vision. Is the voice his kind of angelic tour guide? I don't think so. Why? Because that guy's standing by him. And he hears it from inside. Remember? Okay, so you catch verse 6. There's this guy, and he's standing by him, probably got his arms folded wings if he's got them, okay? And he hears a voice, um, a, a resounding voice. So probably it's the Lord talking here, right? And the Lord reveals his intentions for this new structure, for in particular, for the rebuilding of the temple. Now, um, it's interesting to me that as he talks about this, uh, he talks about some awful things going on, including he uses a reference to prostitution. What Anytime you read prostitution in the Old Testament, you need to make that equivalent to just recognize idolatry. He's talking about, now we know that even in the New, in New Testament age, that prostitution was part of uh, pagan worship, and it was in, in Ezekiel's day. But what he's talking about here particularly is um, um, in, in terms of, um, of un, uh, in, uh, infidelity and those kind of things is idolatry, worshiping other deities besides the Lord himself alone. So he's going to reveal his intentions, and he begins to talk about kings and palaces here. When he talks about thresholds and doorposts, he's probably referring to a, a, the royal palace that some of the pagan kings, even of Israel, that brought all this wreck upon them, built their palace right next to, um, to the temple. Some of the... Um, 
Some of the kings wanted to be buried right next to the temple. And so people started worshiping there instead of at the temple. And they call them sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll hear them talk about high places. So what God is dealing with here is if God's holiness is to be present in this new place, wherever this place is, and it's a little bit of a mystery, then a new and holy people are going to be required. Now I want to submit to you that we're not talking about a place at all. We're talking about a condition. As he continues to talk here, he uh, kind of shows this blueprint. Um, he tells him to show this blueprint of the temple. And, um, and he begins to talk about the necessity. But let me fill in the very last blank for you. God cares about holiness. Look at verse 12. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain and all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Now, God has a passion for the holiness of his temple is what he's dealing with here. But in our day, where is the temple of God? It makes it clear in the, in the New Testament. Really, it hints at it. I think here he's hinting at it. that the, the rebuilding of the temple is not the issue at bricks and mortar. The rebuilding of the temple is the idea of returning to God by repentance in your heart. Because he's going to say in 37.26 and 36.27, which is interesting that those are kind of transposed, but they're the, they're the places. He's going to say that it's... Uh, I'm going to be, my temple will be among the people forever. That doesn't sound like a place to me because that temple even was destroyed. It doesn't sound like to me he's talking about a building because in 36, 27, he's going to say, but the Holy Spirit will be in you. So here's my question as we leave. This is a foreshadowing of the close relationship that exists between God and you and me. For those who repent and decide to live like God wants us to live, we're his temple. So, my question is, Ezekiel's dealing with a renovation problem, a reconstruction problem. And my question is to myself, and I hope you'll take it for you, what kind of redecoration needs to happen in the temple that's my heart? What kind of reconstruction needs to take place in the temple where God lives now, where his Holy Spirit dwells now? It's the only place he lives now. He doesn't live in buildings. I love to come here, but the reason he's here is because you're here and I'm here. What kind of renovation do I need to do in the temple of God? Can I make you a promise? If you'll commit to changing and renovating, he will do, I promise you, more of the work than you will. He will meet you more than halfway. All that cleaning up that you think you've got to do that you can't do, he will do on your behalf because he desires a holy people 
to live within. All right, we're going to still be in this chapter next week. God bless you.